0: Hello Victoria, how are you? Nothing
1: like A bit of technical problems to get things going.
0: Uh, but we, we, we're not doing too badly. We've got a few technical problems. But I people am. are people bear with us because they're good people.
1: <laughs> oh God.
0: <laughs> you That's hate everybody. Depressing.
1: Um not as much as one person. I'm just going to close hate? this triple glazing, make sure that I'm all airtight here. <laughs> No leaks here. Oh, good. Right. So, uh, I'm Victoria Mitzi. I'm a journalist. I'm a mother. I'm an all-round superhuman. How about you?
0: And you're leak-free, despite being a middle-aged woman who's had a child. Um, Oh, well, there
1: there are many who've had more.
0: (laughs) And a (laughs) leakier. I'm Ben Ando, I'm a former BBC correspondent, former crime reporter, Um, and yeah, I'm enjoying this podcast. It's been fun during lockdown, and uh, I guess we're just going to keep on going until um, one or the other of us gets utterly fed up with it, or people stop listening.
1: Hmm. Uh, I'd also like to say that you can um, listen to us on various different ways. If you found us somewhere, for example iTunes. Then um, we're also available on Spotify if you prefer to listen that way. Um, and I'd also like to say, just very quickly, I know you don't like to add it in, Ben, but um, it's a lot of adult content, uh, a bit of naughty language. So if you don't like that, go away. What, what do I say? If you don't like it,
0: I think that's it. If you don't like, I mean, if you don't like it, why are you listening? I mean, why would you be listening to a true crime podcast um, if a little bit of bad language is going to make you get the vapours. Well, mean, it's not just on, bad language.
1: Up. I do understand because, you know, some of, these, some of these cases, they've all got different shapes and sizes, haven't they? And if you happen to listen to something which triggers, like um, we had that email last episode, didn't we? Um, we got an email saying uh, that it triggered some memories of when he was working with a sex offender. So those well, that, was kind of things, that was Neil. That was Neil. Okay, well, it can be um, quite raw for people, so maybe it's worth that you know there's a little kind of trigger saying you know, or perhaps for example, I'd forgotten that I'd sat on rape trials, and it you know if if you're listening to something like the Night Stalker episode that we did, it might trigger things. So just you know be on guard. But a lot of people are really up for hearing gr- <laughs> grime and gore, so that's good then.
0: Hooray. And you can also email us if you do want to get in touch and tell us how terribly you've been triggered by our incessant bad language and indeed gory details. You can email us at uh, you didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com.
1: And of course you can follow us on Twitter.
0: At Y-D-L-M-F podcast.
1: It's catchy.
0: <laughs> it's a, okay, I know. It's the worst Twitter handle ever. <laughs> um, but No, it's not. There it are others the out there because yeah. there are so many yeah.
1: thousands of podcasts. If you're listening to us and you make a podcast, then you'll also know by listening to others that um, there's some interesting, very diverse stuff out there, and actually a lot of very good. But um, our, twittle hand, our twittle handle ain't the
0: worst. Actually, I'm quite proud to be able to say that my Twitter handle, my own Twitter handle, is at Benando. And the reason I've just got my own name and no numbers or anything else like that is that I reckon I was quite early to the Twitter party because I got Twitter in, I think, about 2006 or something. How
1: come you're Twitter. so shit, then?
0: Oh, I don't know, because I'm lazy and I can't be bothered. And I mean, Twitter as well, it's just... I sort of dip into it and dip out of it. It's fun having interactions with people, but a lot of it is just echo chamber crap, isn't it?
1: It's funny that you can be bothered when it's promoting something to do with how great you think you are.
0: (laughs) I know. You can manage uh, very adequately Every every human being is the same. They just want to talk about how great they are. I love talking about how great I am, even if I'm not. I like talking about
1: how crap other people are.
0: (laughs) That makes it much more worthwhile. worthwhile. That's why we get on well, because I can just sit and talk about how great I am, and you just sit there in silence rolling your eyes.
1: And then, you, and then you pretend not to know when I blatantly ram it down your throat after, it's, after the whole arduous process is <laughs> finished. But people love it. They're, you've got the meeting out of your hands. you made a career out of it.
0: Who's loving what? Nobody's loving anything.
1: Oh, I've wheeled you into a few situations and you're like, oh, yes, you know, the, the compression process of crude oil. <laughs> what on earth are
0: you talking about? <laughs> you know very well what I'm talking about. You're a nerd. Oh I'm a bit of a nerd, that's true, yes. I I'm I'm a happy nerd. Anyway, what are we yeah. gonna talk about this week? Come on, let's get on with it. I don't this. know, you've organised everything. No, I have not, but what I did okay, there's two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about well, we can talk about um lockdown crime as we always do. Um I also wanna talk a little bit about juries and, and kind of the the whole jury system and um in and why Um, whether it's the best way of deciding somebody's guilt or innocence in a trial. And our our sort of feature story, if you like, is going to be um, a really sad one. It's um, The Murder of Sarah Payne by Roy Whiting. Um,
1: Uh, So just quickly, moving on to um, some emails. One of the choices, I just wanted to link it to the choice for talking about juries and the process, is because we've had requests from more than one person to talk about processes that have perhaps gone wrong and reasons for that and there was another one wasn't there ben
0: um yeah it was about um language wasn't it and people oh, yeah. using um language to frustrate an investigation or get away with crime it was a a question from David, who's a Welsh speaker, and he says we have legal right to access public services in Welsh. Well, we all know that if we've been to Wales and seen all the road signs are now in Wales in Welsh as well as in um, in English. In fact, some police cars have the word headloo on them, which I think is presumably Welsh for police, as well as the word police. It just um, could be
1: they could have just painted "cool." On their car or like chosen they all have different ones. Oh no, it's all Headloo, is it?
0: It's all yeah, Headloo is the word for police. Like our our police cars would have the Battenberg striping down the side, um, and then they would say police on them. Whereas <laughs> No in shit. Wales, yeah, yeah, no shit. Just in at all.
1: case you were like, Where this where's the police? And they're yeah. right next to
0: you. Yeah. Um, whereas now, I mean, some, I mean, if you look at, you know, I don't know, photos or, or you look at Welsh vehicles, they say Hedlu police or they, they just say police on one side and Hedlu on the other side or whatever because and then that feeds into what David was saying about um, people in Wales having sort of the right to use um, the Welsh language. But he, his point is, has anybody kind of tried to get away with the crime by refusing to communicate in English or trying to pretend they don't understand? I mean, of course, yeah, I'm sure they have done. But the thing is... What we are quite good at, and I've seen this in court, is having translators. So, I mean, I've seen people on trial who claimed that English wasn't their, for, who, for whom English wasn't their first language, but also claiming they couldn't speak English, and they will get a translator in or an interpreter in for them. And, I mean, particularly that, um, uh, I, I do recall that um, taking place with, um, I think, uh, Russian um, criminal. I can't remember the exact case. I'm racking my brains now, but I do remember the the interpreter um sat beside that person throughout the trial and was kind of um had headphones on and the criminal had headphones or the, the defendant had headphones on and the interpreter was effectively translating as um the barrister spoke, as the judge spoke, as um witnesses gave evidence, um so the defendant could hear what was going on.
1: Oh, but it worked. I thought you were gonna say something went wrong with the process.
0: No, I don't think it. I don't think anyone. I thought you were well. going to say it, it
1: was like. What um, <laughs> was that, Nelson Mandela's? What was that? It was something in South Africa where they had a sign language person. What was that?
0: Oh, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that still
1: makes me laugh. What was it, Nelson? Nelson or was it Winnie?
0: Oh Winnie, don't don't Winnie me.
1: What was this? No. Do you know that they've called the people next door have called their dog Winnie because um she's troublesome.
0: I thought it was after Winston Churchill. Winnie No, Churchill.
1: it's Winnie Mandela because she rallies the troops and she's like right in there organizing everyone.
0: What this is this is the dog or Winnie Mandela? The dog after
1: the dog, the Winnie.
0: The dog rallies troops and is another What well, the dog organises their house. But no,
1: the other it? dogs, I mean.
0: Oh, the, the, their dog organises the other dogs.
1: That's what Winnie Mandela did, didn't she? Um, the football team.
0: Is it the Labrador National Congress?
1: <laughs> Listen, um, yes. it was the sign interpre- the sign language interpreter for, for um, Winnie Mandela. Uh, sorry, Nelson Mandela. We were just talking about Winnie, weren't we? Nelson Mandela's memorial. Do you remember him? Go on. He just made it up as he went along, didn't he? And then someone realised that he was making up the sign language. And then by that point, it was too late. And he's just going for it, hell for leather. And he was also (laughs) ultra enthusiastic.
0: Well, he created his own made-up sign language just Yeah, like you or I could if we wanted to. Was it like kind of mine? Was it the magic of mine?
1: Haven't you seen him? You've got to go... Anyone who's listening to this has got to Google that right now. Just put Nelson Mandela, interpreter. Like, he's utterly believable because he's sort of on the... You think, oh, right, they, they chose someone with a sort of really enthusiastic manner. But he's just there kind of doing shadow shapes. <laughs>
0: So, now you've served on a jury, haven't you, Victoria? Twice. Yeah. Um, Were well, they both rape cases?
1: Yes. How, who what th- are the
0: chances of I that? I know! <laughs> so a few years ago, I mean quite a few years ago now, I covered a few trials and I'd noticed that I seemed to have quite a few hung juries. And one of them was Sean Jenkins, who was accused of murdering his stepdaughter, Billy Jo Jenkins. I remember thinking, that seems odd. And we put in a Freedom of Information request and discovered that in a, couple, a very short period of time, the number of hung juries in England and Wales had doubled. And we thought, well, that's okay. It's still a tiny, tiny number. And if you think about you know, the numbers of Crown Court cases taking place, well, certainly normal times, every week in England and Wales, it was still a very small number resulting in hung juries. But it did seem statistically significant that the num- that small number had doubled. And of course, it doubles again, doubles again. Suddenly, a small number becomes a significant number. And we looked into the reasons why. One of the things that came up time and time again, and we people aren't supposed to say what goes on in the jury room, but we had loads of emails in from all sorts of people telling us all sorts of things they shouldn't. Um, I'm, you know, I can repeat some of them without being specific. One of the things that came across time and time again was that jurors get confused by the direction that they need to be sure. And every judge, when he's tending a jury out to deliver its, uh, consider its verdict, will say, you've heard the evidence um, and now you must make up your mind and you must give me a verdict on which you are sure. Now, defense lawyers who love this will say, yeah, but sure is a perfectly simple English word. We all know what it means. And the thing is actually sure means different things to different people. Is sure a synonym for certain? Is sure a synonym for 100%? Or does sure mean, yeah, I think that's what happened, but there might be a tiny sliver of doubt. Now. They used to say, years ago, um, you must deliver a verdict that you believe to be correct beyond reasonable doubt. Now, the phrase beyond reasonable doubt just gives you that kind of chink of wriggle room. So they say, well, look, I'm not 100% totally sure, but I'm pretty sure, and that'll do. Whereas just saying you have to be sure fills people with confusion. And we got email after email saying something similar. I mean, one guy said that he was on a jury... And at one point, three of the jurors took themselves off into the corner and started having some long existential debate of how you could be sure of, of whether you could be sure of every, anything at all, and whether the whole of existence wasn't just some weird mental uh, game that was being played on them. Um, and Where so was you this? Have, well, I can't say this specific case because we're not supposed to talk about jurors in a specific case. A lot of the barristers we spoke to said, look. It might be helpful if the judge said you need to be 99% sure. Because actually, the reason that most cases come to trial is because there is an element of doubt. If it was completely cut and dried, then in most cases the defendant would realise that and would plead guilty to get a little bit of time cut off the sentence. Yeah. And it's very difficult to say you're 100% certain about anything. But yes. okay. saying beyond reasonable doubt is fair. Yes, and
1: I, I, I went with that. I mean, When did that stop being the case?
0: When did what stop being the case? Beyond
1: Reasonable Doubt.
0: Oh, probably 20, 25 years ago now. They've oh, been saying well, I used it because it helped this. me a lot. Ah, yeah, but that's because you knew about it. I bet the judge didn't say and is something up to you, or her something he up to
1: you. He actually did remind us quite a lot in one of them.
0: But did the judge say the phrase, beyond reasonable doubt?
1: That's a good question. I don't know, because I'd be very surprised,
0: because in all the court cases I've covered over the years since, what, 90, I know, 1990, 1991, I've never heard a judge say beyond reasonable doubt. They always say you have yeah. to be sure. No, I that's think f-
1: I think he dissected being sure, which oh, okay. is what's well, confusing good, me. It was that's interesting, yeah, yeah, because it depends on how you do it because it's only if you say beyond reasonable doubt that it's clear. If you dissect it in a different way, you can confuse people more, in my opinion. That's m-
0: and that's my point. Uh, incidentally, and just sort of slightly off at a tangent on this. We had lots of other really interesting emails come in and I mean here's a good example of why um, sometimes the jury system can, can sort of hit the rocks. So there was one guy who emailed and he said he's covering a very simple um, street robbery, a mugging case that took place um, and he said that the defendants gave evidence they were very very um, unconvincing the witnesses were very convincing the evidence was all there in his view it was totally cut and dried and they went and sat in their jury room and he said well okay so the first thing we did was form and said look let's have a quick sort of go round the room and see how we vote and maybe we can come back with a quick verdict and they went round the room It was guilty 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 and right at the end a lady said not guilty and they all turned and looked and said "Well, okay you know fair play what is it you think about the evidence that leads you to suggest that this the guy didn't carry out this street robbery, and she goes, "Oh, I'm sure he did it, but I just don't believe in prison, so I can't, I can't uh, convict in all conscience." I was like, "Well, hold on, that's a lot of nonsense, because hmm. when you start as a jury, you take an oath to try the defendant." on the evidence and give a verdict according mm. to that evidence. It's not according to your own pre- presumption as to what's going to happen to them afterwards. But that's but what's that... so
1: interesting about having juries.
0: You do get some yeah. right old kooky so and so's but that's I mean that's why we have a majority direction. You can go down to ten too. You can't go any lower than ten. You have to have at least ten people agreeing, because I think there'd be a feeling that if you went down to sort of eight or seven people agreeing, then it could be a bit flaky. But you have to have ten. But then that but that also leads me to another thought which is this. So We've heard a woman there saying, I, I refuse to convict because I don't believe in sending somebody to prison. And that might be quite an extreme view that most people probably wouldn't agree with. But let's imagine a scenario where um, there was a referendum and the people spoke. And we all know that if you offered a referendum on the death penalty, the British public would vote probably you know, 80% to bring back the death penalty for I don't know, child murder, um, murder of a police officer, that kind of thing, the most serious crimes. Now, imagine a circumstance in which you've got a jury deliberating in a case where somebody could face the death penalty if they if, if convicted. Now, I su- suggest there is significantly more than 20% of the population are so vehemently opposed to the death penalty that they wouldn't be able to convict somebody if they thought that conviction might lead them to be killed. And I think that's why, realistically, we can't reintroduce the death penalty because I just don't think we'd ever get any convictions.
1: It's a bit of a, just a, bit of a tangent, I think.
0: My fundamental view is, over the years, I've come to believe that it's probably the least shit system. I don't think we should have judges making, uh, deciding on guilt like they do in some countries. Every single day up and down the country, certainly in normal times, juries of ordinary members of the public, like you and me, are going into rooms and deciding on whether somebody is guilty or innocent, and they're taking a vote, and then they are deciding. And the decision they make affects somebody's life massively. It's possibly the most consistently democratic thing that's happening all the time in this country that you can think of. I mean, we only have general elections, what, once every five years. But juries are taking votes and deciding on what happens to people every single day of the week, um, certainly every single working day of the week. And so I think more than anything, the jury system is the right system because it's fair. It, it, does, it is fair, in my view. I, I don't think there are very many miscarriages of justice. Of course there are some, but not many. And I think it does give us real democracy every single day of the week.
1: Well, I agree with you. Um, having seen, you know, many a jury make many a decision, having been in that process, it did concern me because we all know that we look over and one or two of them are asleep. (laughs) Um, You know, some of them are quite elderly. I have my concerns, but as you say, overridingly, it's a fairer system than many others that could be in place.
0: Well, I mean, juries are sometimes discharged. If the judge realises or has it reported to him or her that a juror has fallen asleep, um, they will often discharge that jury and restart the trial. Alternatively, but sometimes the
1: judge is asleep.
0: <laughs> well, and in that case, t- trials have had to be restarted too. There have been cases where judges have nodded off and gentle snoring has emanated from the judicial benches and the trial has had to be restarted. Um, and Goodness, that's why Parliament's some...
1: asleep, the judiciary's <laughs> asleep.
0: Uh, the only person awake in all this is Dominic Cummings, apparently, who didn't <laughs> fall asleep at the wheel.
1: <laughs> no, he, and... he only
0: wakes up to go and have fun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, moving on to our main topic for today,
0: let's talk about Sarah Payne. Then, well, this is a case from back in two thousand, and I remember we heard that a little girl had gone missing. It was a um, it was July, so it was lovely, sunny weather, and um, she had gone missing. Um, in a very rural area in the south of England, um, not not that far from Brighton, um, it was a, a little um, village um, near to the home of her grandparents, called Kingston Gorse, and she'd been playing with her brothers, who at the time were in their sort of one was thirteen and one was eleven. Um, and and just vanished and of course there was a huge nationwide appeal there is apparently a sighting somewhere on a motor on the m6 motorway i think or on the m1 motorway and so this kind of led to this idea that this little girl had been sort of abducted and, and was being taken far and wide um in the end she was found her body was found um not that far away about uh, 10 or 15 miles away and of course it, that It became a murder investigation and it was quite soon uh, after that police arrested Roy Whiting. Now Roy Whiting was somebody who who had a previous conviction um, for attempting to abduct a child and had um, been on the sex offenders register. In fact at the time uh, the sex offenders register was quite a new thing and he was one of the first people to be put on it. This was back in uh, 1995 when he'd committed his first sexual offence. He um, abducted and um, uh, sexually assaulted a nine-year-old girl uh, in Crawley, which is not far from Gatwick Gatwick Airport. Um, Was it a similar
1: case to Sarah Payne?
0: Yes. I mean, well, a a little girl abducted, sexually assaulted, not killed, though. Um, But was she
1: abducted from countryside, do you know?
0: Well... Uh, I mean, it was kind of crawly. It was sort of a, it was a, near a park. I remember going to the location. It was kind of like a, a, a sort of Y-shaped section of roads so with a sort of green park area where kids used to play in the middle of it. Mm. Um, and the, the point was, though, the pu- crucial point was that he was caught because the, um, the victim um, had been able to um, just talk a little bit about uh, the attacker and the vehicle... And uh, somebody else recognised the vehicle, contacted the police, and that was how Roy Whiting was tracked down. He served two years and five months, so just under two and a half years, of a four-year sentence. And he actually had to serve extra time in prison because he refused to take part in a scheme that was designed to help rehabilitate um, paedophiles and and sexual offenders. So he, um, presumably one thinks, had learned that the one thing you do to avoid being caught is not leave your victim around to give a description of you. Um, But unfortunately for Roy Whiting, although he killed Sarah Payne to prevent her giving uh, an account of him or what he had done, one of her brothers saw the white van and saw the man behind the wheel and gave the police a description of a man who appeared to have um, very yellow teeth. Uh, I don't know, maybe a bit like Austin Powers or something. Oh, yeah, was, was... He was a
1: young boy, wasn't he?
0: He was, yeah, about so that was 13, a great
1: description to give, I thought.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, a man with yellow teeth. And the police um, looked at the sex offenders registered, they looked at Roy Whiting, and they thought, hmm, OK. So they went to see him, and he was arrested. Now, he was then questioned, they forensically examined his, his van. It, t- it took a while but they eventually had enough, and the evidence they had against him wasn't that strong, but it was it was strong enough. They had evidence that none of her clothes were ever found, but a her, her shoe was found, and on that shoe there were some fibres that were also found in his van, and they also found in the van one single strand of blonde hair, and DNA analysis um, showed that I think the chances of that hair coming from anyone other than Sarah Payne were something like 1 in 10 million to 1. So it was very, very likely to be her hair. Goodness. And and he was was convicted. He was given a whole life term. That is, the judge said he had to spend the rest of his life in prison. Now, after that, there were appeals. uh, And I think he can now be released, but not until the year 2040, at least. So These appeals,
1: I mean, we've been talking about the judicial process a bit, the, the um, juries and so on. Yeah. Why would somebody like Roy Whiting appeal?
0: Well, he would appeal because his lawyers have told him that he's got a chance of succeeding. And he's not appealing against his conviction. He's appealing against the length of his sentence. And there are two grounds that he would have. The first was that, according to the... Um, international human rights legislation to which the UK has signed up, uh, nobody should be put in prison indefinitely. Everybody should be told at the time that they are imprisoned when they can expect to be released. That's, a, that's a, considered to be a fundamental human right. The second point is that uh, the then Home Secretary, I think David Blunkett, had imposed this full-life term, and I think there was a bit of a, a squabble about whether he had imposed it and gone beyond his powers in being able to oppose it. I mean, the powers were subsequently given to Home Secretaries to do this, but I think at that time that he imposed that uh, full life sentence, the legislation hadn't been enacted, and I think there was a bit of a grey area. In any event, Roy Whiting isn't going to be released until he's in his eighties, and one hopes at that point no longer a risk to children. one of the interesting things about this case um, apart apart from um, the actual case itself uh, was that Sarah Payne's parents um, uh, Sarah Payne and and her father called Michael Payne so Sarah Sarah Payne's parents uh, Sarah Payne her mother and Michael her father they in a bizarre way, they, be, they they became kind of minor celebrities. They'd, first of all, they'd been hugely involved in this this search for Sarah when she was thought she still might be alive. They'd made various media appeals. Um, but then Sa- Sarah Payne, uh, Sarah's mother, went on to become a figurehead for a change in the law designed to allow people who have a registered sex offender move into their area, uh, designed to allow parents in particular to know that that's happened to be able to find out and apply to the local authorities, to be told if there are any... Um, registered sex offenders living in their area, so perhaps they can be extra vigilant. Now, the problem with that sort of a law is, of course, it does leave itself open to vigilante action and so on. So it's a, it's it's very difficult. But there was a long campaign, and they and Sarah Payne became very closely it is, involved. It is. It was backed by the, the Sun, wasn't it? Saw so in the news of the world. That's right, and and of course, this when the, the news of the world was expo- exposed in the phone hacking scandal, uh, one of the things that I think particularly sickened people was that one of the phones they hacked was Sarah Payne's phone, and yet she was supposed the figurehead of their own campaign to try to um, get this what became known as Sarah's Law for parents to have the right to know about sex offenders, registered sex offenders, living in their area.
1: What I find now, interesting about that law is that. It's now come into action, hasn't it? And how many people do actually know...
0: I don't think it's widely used. I think the reason it's not widely used, it's not simple, it's not easy to do. And the, pro- the reason it's not easy to do is that I believe that the powers that be don't really want it. It was enacted because of pressure and because of a widespread public campaign and public belief. But I actually think there is a bit of a danger in you know having this information too widely available for all sorts of reasons. It does prevent the offender actually living a normal life and... Really, our criminal justice system is based fundamentally around the idea of rehabilitation. Um, If you genuinely believe that somebody can't be rehabilitated, then they shouldn't really be released at all. Sure, but at the same Uh, time,
1: the incidence of sex... uh, I think paedophiles have the lowest success rate of rehabilitation from (laughs) out-of-all criminals.
0: It's really difficult. I mean, I interviewed a paedophile who... Um, was chemically castrated. He basically took pills that completely killed his sexual urges. And he said, honestly, that's the only way that I know that I'm safe. Any kind of paedophile who is self-aware will will acknowledge that it's incredibly difficult to control... Well, then the self-awareness is something
1: which is... I mean, that's contentious in itself, isn't it, really? Because there's a lot of deception involved in child abuse. And, um, you know, if you're quite clever, then you can manipulate people. We were talking about that only in the last episode with... um, um, goodness, <laughs> his name escapes me.
0: It's John yes. oh, so, right. yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it was it was all about his ability to fool the parole board, wasn't it? So if you're a, I presume, if you're a paedophile, you'll have many years' experience fooling people and manipulating people. So by the time that yeah. you get to that stage, you're adept.
0: Absolutely. And, and, and you know, and we'll go back to Roy Whiting. Uh, one of the things that was clear on this was that he refused to take part in that Rehabilitation program designed to, you know, particularly focus on paedophiles and stop them reoffending. He re- and he had to serve an extra period in jail the first time round in the in the mid 90s because he refused to take part in that rehabilitation uh, scheme. And in fact, I remember one of the most striking things about it was that when we came to do the coverage on the day that he was convicted, the police released um, video footage of him being questioned. And it was it was quite chilling because every single question they asked, he would just say, no comment, mm. no comment, no comment. And it was just, it was monotonous, it was sinister, it was, um, what is that phrase, the banality of evil. It was, he, he was just clearly, knew he was guilty, but just kept no commenting to everybody. It was the way he said it, no comment. He mm. kind of had this particular way of phrasing it that that just... I, it just made your skin crawl, and it made it was it was just hideous. The personal tragedy of the Payne family here. So you've got Sarah and Michael who've lost their their daughter Sarah. Their their marriage crumbles under the stress of this. Um, they separate, I think, um, maybe a, a year or so after Roy Whiting is convicted. Um, and then sometime later, um, Michael Payne um, he suffers from depression. He becomes he develops a drinking problem. He becomes an alcoholic. Um, They separated in 2003, which I think was two years after the conviction of Roy Whiting. Um, He gets into a fight with his brother, and he actually then serves a short period in jail. And then um, a few years ago, uh, he was found dead at his home. Um, Police said no suspicious circumstances, and it's believed that he died of uh, alcohol-related disease, illness.
1: It's very sad Um, what it does to and that's part of the reason that I want to just add a small disclaimer when we start our podcast, because... The pressure that these kind of things, not only are they just horrendous and beyond comprehension for most of us, but the pressure that they put on trying to function in a day-to-day life afterwards.
0: Well, and, of course, the most famous um, example of that is um, the Bulger parents, James Bulger's family. um, His parents uh, were unable to get over the stress of, of his murder by Robert Thompson and John Venables, and their marriage crumbled under the strain as well. I think it's completely understandable tragic and you know and it is often the case that you have these horrific crimes and for most of us who see them read about them watch them um they have an impact and we shudder and we um vicariously you know devour all the details and the information Um, but but of course you know every single crime just sends out shockwaves and ripples around it and and often there is a, a trail of devastation that kind of echoes down the years and you have families torn Interestingly enough, apart. it
1: reminds me of something that I was reading just today. In the headline, of course, you look at it because it's mother of stabbed teen dies with broken heart. And uh, this boy, Yusuf Mackey, um, was stabbed in Greater Manchester and his mother, who's just died, a 55-year-old woman, Debbie Mackie, uh, died in the early hours of Sunday and, and her whole family said that she, uh, her heart was broken because of it, I mean...
0: Wasn't it a fight between two schoolboys and uh, one schoolboy stabbed the other? And the the thing is, I think the the schoolboy who was accused of carrying out the killing was acquitted by a jury. And I suspect that that acquittal will have had a huge impact on um, the victim's mother's mental health.
1: Yes, you're right. Do you remember if it was Greater Manchester?
0: Um, Yes, I think it was. Um, that, 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 That definitely rings a bell.
1: I just look at it, it doesn't say anything about it because it's mostly talking about her. Uh, oh, he died in a yeah, fight Hale with Joshua Barnes. Molnar in March 2019. Yes, Joshua
0: Molnar in March 2019, yes. So he was 17 years old, um, mm. the victim. Mm. doesn't say how old the, um, the, 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 the other boy in the fight was. So the, the other the, the other boy um, said it, it was self-defence and he was acquitted of murder and manslaughter by a jury at Manchester Crown Court. Now, of course, the other thing is, the jury will have heard all the facts. We can look at this and think, oh, my God, that seems tragic. The jury will have heard all the facts and will have, I'm sure, t- taken into account um, the impact their um, verdict will have. But perhaps they just thought... It does seem like there was this was a case of self defence, and therefore we should acquit.
1: Oh, the other boy, it says Molnar um, is now eighteen, so right. and it was in, it was last year, so I guess he was seventeen also.
0: Yeah, which um, I suppose he can be if he's now eighteen. That's why he can be named.
1: Just Although, in,
0: to be fair, in some cases after a verdict, a judge will take a decision that a victim's name can be released
1: going back to the point these crimes tear up the lives of everybody around as well Um, which is probably why it's so interesting to people and why true crime podcasts are statistically going through the most popular type of podcast at the moment because we want to understand the world around us and how these things can happen and understand boundaries and what and people who overstep them because most of us abide by them.
0: For sure. I mean, <laughs> yes. I mean, boundaries imposed by society, boundaries imposed in particular times, boundaries imposed during lockdown, which uh, seem some people seem to have decided they can uh, quite happily overstep. In fact, some people in very senior positions seem to have decided they can quite happily overstep. Mm-hmm. Um, it, <laughs> That's right. Uh, boom boom. But yeah. what do you think? What do you think should do?
1: Resign? A or Who? B? Dominic,
0: Dominic Cummings. Mm. Um, I just think it's so simple to me. The the, the lockdown... I mean, you know, there are children who have died alone in hospital whose families have been told they can't visit them because they're in isolation. Um, There have been elderly people who have died alone because whose families can't visit them. Um, This idea that somehow he should be exempt from that is just outrageous. And, of course, you know, I'm not saying he should be prosecuted or anything like that, but I, I I don't believe that at a time when the government... And its and, and its senior members and senior advisers should be setting an example. Should be taking the country with them. Should be providing leadership to carry out to, to to behave in a way that suggests it's one rule for you and one rule for the rest of us up here is absolutely fundamentally wrong, completely wrong.
1: Hmm. Um. Unless you live in Plymouth, I mean, and then you can just do what you like.
0: <laughs> it's. A... <laughs> You know, I mean, even, uh, yeah, I mean, just, just sort of finishing up on Roy Whiting, by the way, mm. just uh, just one sort of, I don't know, appendix to that story mm. is that in prison, he has been attacked several times. He's been stabbed in the eye. He's been stabbed um, in the torso. He's been slashed along his right cheek. So, I mean, you know, Roy Whiting is a revolting, disgusting individual, but his sentence so far has hardly been a basket of roses, which I think most people would probably find quite, uh, quite pleasing.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, it just brings the futility of his existence to you know. Oh my god! Now you're standing, starting to sound
0: like one of the, now you're starting to sound like one of those jurors. Just how sure can we, we be of anything, really?
1: Well, at least I woke <laughs> up.
0: Uh, when did we go off on this philosophical tangent? <laughs> <laughs>
1: but it's absolutely true. I mean, you just thought, what, what can you do with a piece of scum like him? Really,
0: true crime and existentialism—it's all here, folks.
1: It's not that existential to say, you know, he's... What can you do? What, what really can it's you do it, with him? Let him run. And then go, hee-hee-hee, because he's been stabbed in the eye. I mean, it's all just really depressing, actually.
0: Well, yeah, it is pretty depressing. But, um, I th- well, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of the people at the time, there was a strong, oh, this is this is one of those cases where we should have the death penalty, which is um, what, what we've, we spoke about earlier. Um, and I think most people would think... You know, those who are in favour of the death penalty believe that life in prison is is an easy way out, is an easy option. Um, And I think this shows actually it isn't an easy option. I don't think so, but
1: the fact that Roy Whiting is having a horrible time in prison doesn't make me feel any better.
0: No. But then would you feel any better if he had been executed?
1: Hmm. Do you know what I would feel better about? I'd feel better that Sarah's law had been more useful that it kind of went forward to something positive.
0: Mm. And yeah, no, I
1: what, I do on, what I do think out of a very small offshoot of that is that um, apparently women are entitled to go to the police and to ask for... I don't know if I'm completely wrong in the way that I've recounted this. They can go to the police and ask if a new man that they've become involved with is, does have any previous convictions for sex offences...
0: Yeah, that was in um, response to um, another case. It wasn't the guy who took the woman on the speedboat and then she drowned. And he oh, I don't think so. I don't think her. it was
1: that. No, it, it was well before that. Either yeah. way, I don't know what's happened to all of these things because surely that's quite a logical. I mean, vigilantism is a very small price to pay for keeping children safe, and surely if you have to weigh up people's human rights, surely it's someone's human right to know if you have a paedophile living next door.
0: Well, yes, um, and, and and that's what what this is supposed to be about. It, I've turned into a
1: right-lefty today. Well, it's difficult on because, my soapbox.
0: Um, I mean, this is where you get into a, a, a sort of a struggle between who has whose human rights trumps whose. Because if you are a convicted paedophile who is chemically castrated and who genuinely does or doesn't pose a risk as long as they sort of keep under their you know regime of sort of supervision, then. Should, should you everybody around you know? There are, what, that's what uh, you, you
1: and are. I both know there are very few people, and I, I will say people, but the gender is normally male statistically, who opt for chemical castration, and there are also incidents where that doesn't work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying you're wrong here, and I'm not saying that it's wrong for people to be able to find this information out. But I think it shouldn't be just just Google an address and see immediately. I think it should be something yeah. where you have to work quite hard to find yes. it out. Because that will filter out mischief makers. But and, surely and, and, and. you
1: go and prove that you've been seeing someone and you know you maybe want them to meet your children. It would just be really nice to have that security. But, I mean, also you have to have the foresight to want to do that you know you have to kind of have the planning and most people live their lives and they're really too busy to even you know if you meet someone and you like them the last thing you're going to think is are my children in danger from them do you know what I mean so it's all a very weird thing I mean unfortunately if someone like him is about to do what they're going to do you know and you have I mean how many she was with her three siblings at the time how can you always if they're running through a field in a place that they've played in their whole lives Watch them all the time.
0: You can't. You can't. It's true. And the, and the thing is that no no, no society is risk free. No place can be entirely without danger. It's it's statistically vanishingly small. But of course, for every Sarah Payne, there there would have been you know a couple of million kids out that day playing who who didn't run into a, a murderous paedophile. It's very difficult, and you have to weigh up what is what. What is the sort of the you know the 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 benefit analysis here? Who is do, who are we protecting? And and is it realistic to expect blanket one hundred percent protection of everybody?
1: Well, I don't think that's very good for people, is it? Really, it's not good for the way that you live, and it's also not good to rear your children like that.
0: In what way is it not good to raise your children
1: that you're always breathing down their neck and you don't let them have any freedom?
0: Yeah, I mean, you can't wrap them in cotton wool. It's true. Um, You know, children have to learn some independence. They have to learn to be allowed out. And I think how you balance that up varies from town to town and parent to parent. I mean, if you are living in, as I do, in rural Cambridgeshire, then I suspect your children probably can have a little bit more freedom than those who live um, somewhere in, you know, an inner city somewhere. Although this
1: was rural Surrey. That we're talking wow. about Sarah being snatched yes, from. Yes,
0: absolutely it was. It was, a, it was a, Sussex, uh, West Sussex. It was rural West Sussex. Oh, so you're was, ab- um... sorry,
1: you're absolutely right. But um, there's a crossover with, is um, Whiting from Surrey?
0: And Crawley is in Surrey. Crawley, where he carried out his first attack in uh, 1995, is in Surrey. She was abducted in Sussex. Maybe he drove a little, bu- a little way from his home to try and cover his tracks. Right.
1: So you were in court for this one.
0: Yes, that's right. And In fact, Lewis Crown Court is where it happened. It was a beautiful, proper old-fashioned courtroom. With I know all it. I cut my teeth around. there. Did you? Yes,
1: we went there to hear a um, a, <laughs> a case of a woman who had been running a bordello or whatever you call them, um, a brothel from uh, Pease Pottage a near the motorway the <laughs> services. She was amazing. <laughs> it was brilliant. I was like, I want to be a journalist.
0: The prostitutes of Pease Pottage.
1: <laughs> the peas of Pease Pottage.
0: Yeah. The cottage in Pease Pottage. pottage. <laughs> Pease pottage, <laughs> pottage Sex Cottage. Pease Pottage Sex Cottage. That does sound like a film, doesn't it?
1: Oh, and it was all, it issues exactly how they should be. You know, she sort of clasped her heaving breast in the dock and sort of was really kind of estuary and brilliant.
0: Was she wearing lots of makeup and had sort of something pink on and a pair of man eater mules? <laughs>
1: didn't check her footwear out. I was just so amazed at that age that people could go into court and watch other people's dirty linen being washed <laughs> in public.
0: And hers was the dirtiest of dirty linen.
1: Yeah, uh, hers was pretty dirty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you missed oh my out God. On that. Yeah, Lewis Crown Court mm. has been... I, I've, I've had quite a few... Um, Charles at Lewis Cairn Court to go and report on and and it is a fantastic building I mean there's various reasons why it's a great court to report from, first of all it exudes a sense of history, it's a proper old style courtroom and secondly is there's only one way in and out unless you're coming in a a van and so uh, as a broadcast journalist you know you you kind of hold back but if you hold back you can usually get a good shot of all the, the characters in the case whether it's the defendants if they're not in custody as Sean Jenkins wasn't when he appeared there um, charged with murdering his uh, stepdaughter, Billy Jo Jenkins, sorry, foster daughter, Billy Jo Jenkins, first time round. And, of course, all the witnesses come and go as well and you can get shots of them. And, of course, if you're telling a story on TV, you do you do need pictures of the, the people involved in the story.
1: Well, if you're just a snotty young student as I was, you just kind of <laughs> squeeze in and don't think about any of that except, wow, look all these naughty people. <laughs> and I haven't changed since.
0: No, quite. <laughs> <laughs> but go,
1: where were you with Lewis Crown Court? Oh, yes, you saw him in Lewis Crown Court.
0: So, uh, in fact, I, I, I do remember the conviction. He didn't say much. He, his, um, he, he tried to... I mean, his, his demeanour was um, very poor. I mean, it was, it, it was one of those cases where I think most of the journalists would have agreed quite from early on, especially given there wasn't much forensic evidence, but what there was was, was pretty um, damning. And he was the kind of person who does not give off an air of um, you know bonhomie and um, <laughs> you know gregarious sans foi he was very he very he, he's very much one of these people who seems awkward seems tense just sort of you know looking at him makes you feel a bit tense he he was not a good witness on his own on his own behalf and the evidence against him was fairly damning it was really just a question of um, how long the jury would take to take up their minds and my recollection is that they didn't take long mm. um, and Every time you get a verdict, there's there's that sort of. The jury is sent out, and then it could be a day, it could be a week, it could be a month, that you're waiting. And suddenly, and you'll then get a call. You know, all parties in um, Whiting to court one. They always the case is always referred to by the name of the defendant. So, so you all look at each other. Now, you might be called back in just because the jury have got a question they want to ask the judge. So, you know, during their deliberations, they might say, "Can we see a piece of CCTV again? Can we?" ask this particular question it, it might just be because the, the judge wants to um maybe give them the majority direction which means he says look i don't expect a unanimous verdict i'll accept a verdict of 10 to 2 or 11 to 1 but when it's a verdict you go in and the, the usher will sort of just give you an odd yes this is the verdict because the jury will have sent a note to the judge saying we've reached a verdict um so the judge will then call them back in and uh, he'll ask the former a to stand and that person will say, on count one, you know, abducting or murdering, you know, Sarah Payne, do you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? No. And there's there's always a sort of, a, it's a highly charged moment because you know, you've, got, you've got lots of human beings in a small space, all of whom have got something invested in it. If you're a reporter, you're thinking, which of my background as i going to run? Is this going to be? Um, you know, how are we going to cover this story? What We've got stuff that we can use or can't use, depending on the verdict. If you're the defendant, of course, it's hugely important. Of course, if you're the family of the victim, perhaps it's, it's more, more important than for anybody, because you, know, you are waiting to hear if you are about to get justice for the loved one that you have lost. And so there's this, the emotion is, is, is literally crackling when you are waiting for that verdict to come. And, and you know, often there are cheers, there are shouts. And the judges often say, I don't want any reaction um, when the verdict is given well. I mean, talk about pissing into the wind.
1: Well, also the legal counsel have put mm-hmm. so much work into it. You can't just sort of hold back, even sort of, as you were saying, and I think it was the last podcast, that your body language says so much. I mean, the whole court heaves a sigh of whatever it is, don't they? Yeah.
0: I suppose it's a bit like, um, if you're watching The Barristers, it's a bit like um, the camera that tr- is trained on the uh, the Oscar contenders when they announce the Oscar winner. And the, the ones who lose have to be gracious and smile even though it's. <laughs> Go tearing their hands. up inside, but no, I mean, for, for, for obviously barristers have put a huge amount of effort in, and reputations are made and lost on results in court, and and, and that is that is important. Um, I suspect that is it like Jordan barristers...
1: and Javine at the Eurovision Song Contest?
0: <laughs> Did you see that? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Nil <No> point.
1: <laughs> Did you see the? I think it's Javine. I don't. I don't really.
0: What uh, is Jovina? Is that a person or a country? It's a
1: person, and they were pitted against each other because Jordan did that terrible song a few years ago. Do you remember? And she sort of is turned your, up in a sort of bright pink lyrics, bubblegum pink catsuit.
0: Mm. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever watched the Eurovision Song Contest in my life. I can think you? I'd not, I think I'd, I think I'd, I'd sooner boil my own testicles than watch the Eurovision Song Contest. But However, Ben, now you you mean you've got d- a d- gay d-
1: daughter. Don't you have to? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I don't. She's not interested in it either. Um, hang on. Do you mean you mean the country Jordan or the person Jordan? The
1: person the... Jordan sang at the Eurovision uh-huh. so, All you need to know is that she sang mm-hmm. and she was mouthing off like, I'm so brilliant, I'm so... She was awful. She couldn't like... And I don't mean you just can't... She uh. was just like, if, you know, if your cat would have done it. And, uh, and then there was this other person who was actually like a proper pop star... And I think her name's Javine. And, um, and then when, when Jordan lost, Javine went over and shook her hand, you know, very graciously, but she was trying to rub yeah. her nose in it. And Jordan's face, you've got to Google that one, <laughs> Jordan's face was literally like she wanted to kind of pull her own eyelashes off.
0: <laughs> well, OK. It I was mean, basically uh,
1: uh, similar I... with legal counsel, except minus the yeah. catsuit.
0: Yeah, uh, and the false eyelashes.
1: <laughs> Maybe not. Well, we, we can all no, tell no. they're wearing wigs, though.
0: Not in court, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right, yeah. Mr Justice Fishnets. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, although my, my friend's barrister and she's a very glamorous one. OK. So, yeah. mm, go on, OK.
0: Well, I was going to say, your friend is a barrister um, and this is very glamorous. So, so the false is false, false in full effect.
1: She does wear, like, glamour stuff in court, yeah. But it's what part my... of her, like, power. Like a cat Like a catsuit. She never wears bad shoes. She's got amazing shoes.
0: But does she wear a cat suit in court or something? I mean, she still has to face (laughs) wear a gown. I spend
1: so long looking for three-year-old fancy dress online that I automatically presume it's like a cat outfit. (laughs) 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 That might be a bit hot, Ben. She's got to work. It's got to be practical.
0: (laughs) Well, Um, I mean, I tell you what. I don't think a gown and a wig are particularly practical.
1: They're really not practical and they, all, they hang off them and they annoy me. I want to go and straighten them. And some of them have got really bad wigs, like some of the really great ones i have got really terrible wigs that are all broken.
0: I don't think it'll go down well if you go, you're in court and you say, Can I straighten your wig, my lud?
1: I don't ask, I just do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, oh, you were going to describe Whiting, or have you finished describing him? Well, yeah, I like is, the courtroom ambience, as you were saying it's so good, but you, whenever I try and like drag you to describe it,
0: you're always <laughs> loath to it. No, I, 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 I think you know there, there have been various convictions over the years, but I think the Roy Whiting conviction was one I really, that's really seared in my memory. What I was his defence? I didn't do it, Gov, it wasn't me, I had an alibi. He was supposed to be at a fun fair or something when it happened. Oh, the old it, fun it, I mean, fair. It, the, 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 the alibi sort of crumbled quite quickly. I mean, you know, he, he didn't really have a defence. I mean, he, he wasn't quite as bad as Peter Tobin, who, who, you know, we've talked about before, who had the, the worst defence in history, which was, I'm not saying I didn't do it, but I'm saying you've got to prove that I did do it, um, which they did quite easily because the bodies were found in his garden. Um, but... <laughs> not like,
1: what's his name? who was like, look... She was, she was dead, so who wouldn't Oh, yeah, have Mark, Mark well, Dixie.
0: Mark <laughs> Dixie and Sally Ann Bowman. Yeah, Mark Dixie. He says, look, look. No, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm just a straight-up guy. I didn't murder her. I couldn't murder her. I mean, yeah, OK, I found the corpse and had sex with it, but I didn't murder her. <laughs>
1: Do you know what? You could go by what are little stories for your fancy yeah. dress, going back to sort of merging the two topics. If you wanted to go with somebody, you could go, oh, no, that, that, that's completely wrong. <laughs> just oh, ignore yeah, what we'd... I'm saying. And we talk about Charles'
0: birthday party. I'm gonna go as a Charles' birthday party, I'm going as Mark
1: Dixie. You can go as Mark Dixie and I'll go as Rose West